In tonight's episode, we will be looking at the Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm Mystery. This twisting tale will leave you wondering if Bella was a German spy, a victim of a black magic ceremony, a homeless person, or simply the victim of a practical joke that went horribly wrong. And who is responsible for the foreboding graffiti inquiring who placed Bella in the Witch Elm, which began to surface across the town? Greetings and welcome to the first episode of Series 5 of As Yet Unexplained, a podcast series dedicated to exploring the mysteries and enigmas that continue to evade explanation. Our aim is to delve into the unknown, to shed light on the unexplained, and to offer new perspectives on the world around us. We would like to express our appreciation for your support and kindly request that you consider sharing your thoughts with others by liking, subscribing, or leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is invaluable in helping us grow and improve our content. Please note that the contents of this podcast may contain unsettling descriptions and discussions that may be distressing to some listeners. As always, we exercise caution and sensitivity when presenting these stories, and remind our listeners to take care if they find such material disturbing. Furthermore, we would like to acknowledge and pay homage to the victims of these stories. Our thoughts and condolences are with them and their families, and we ask you that you join us in sparing a moment of reflection and empathy for those who have suffered. Join us as we explore the unknown and unravel the mysteries of the world in As Yet Unexplained. Finding the Body Birmingham and other areas in central England were the locations of intense bombardment by the Nazi German Luftwaffe, which began on the 9th of August 1940 as part of the larger Blitz, which in turn was part of the Battle of Britain, and ended on the 23rd of April 1943. Birmingham, the most populated British city outside of London, was formerly regarded as a major industrial and manufacturing centre. Birmingham received almost 1,852 tonnes of bombs, making it the third most frequently bombarded city in the United Kingdom during World War II, after London and Liverpool. On April 18, 1943, four local teenage boys by the name of Robert Hart, Thomas Willits, Bob Farmer and Fred Payne were, depending on what account you stumble upon, 
looking for bird's eggs, which was quite a popular pastime. Some reports say they were poaching for rabbits to try and help feed their families, as food was being rationed in the United Kingdom because of the war effort. The boys were on average around 17 years old, and they were in essence trespassing in the woods that belonged, at the time, to Lord Cobham, as part of Hagley Hill Estate near Witchbury Hill. The four boys were quietly walking through the woods. Their stealthy manner was adopted by means of not scaring any potential game, and the attention of the gamekeeper. Eventually Bob Farmer came upon a witch elm, the only elm regarded as being truly native to the United Kingdom. Elms were once associated with sorrow and death, possibly due to the tree's proclivity for dropping dead branches without a moment's notice. Coffins were also crafted from witch elm wood, and it is said that they have the ability to give people prophetic dreams in folklore. Farmer decided that his tree could potentially contain the birds' nests and eggs he sought. Slowly he climbed to the middle, where there was a hollow. He stopped and looked down into the tree. Its split bark provided an excellent gripping surface as he leaned inside slightly. He peered down into the dark, hollow trunk. His eyes slowly adjusted to the gloom within the hollow. He could faintly see something white, which was reflecting the light slightly more than anything else within the tree's confines. Slowly Farmer leaned further within, and with an outstretched hand he pulled at the object until it came loose, and he began to lift it out of the hollow. From the heart of this tree, Farmer pulled out not a bird's nest, but a skull. At first, Farmer was dismayed as he believed the skull belonged to an animal. But truth slowly dawned on him as he observed clumps of human hair sticking to its surface and crooked, broken teeth jutting from its twisted mouth. Upon realising, Farmer dropped the skull back into its hollow grave and informed his friends of his discovery, and for fear of getting into trouble, the lads left and promised each other not to tell anybody else about their discoveries. It appears they were more concerned about the fact that they were trespassing and may be in big trouble than about what they had actually just discovered. Despite the boys' pledge to each other, Tom Willits was too upset and felt driven by the haunting thought of what had transpired. He told his parents about what they discovered in the woods. He told his parents exactly where he was and what had happened, and they immediately called the police, who cordoned off the area. Tom followed the police back to the stump, which was approximately 35 yards from Hagley Wood Lane. Here, authorities found a five to six foot tall tree with a tapering opening as tiny as 17 inches in diameter at one point. Here they discovered the skeleton of a woman lodged inside the tree's trunk. She was curled up so her knees were up to her chest and she was quite skeletal, but the bones of one of her hands were scattered around the tree. The woman was wearing an imitation gold ring which the police believed was a fake wedding ring. The corpse had scraps of clothing still clinging to her bones. 
the skull provided important evidence with its hair tufts and a visible dental pattern despite lacking teeth. The skull and other bones were collected from the tree as well as the surrounding ones that had been, they assumed, distributed by foxes and squirrels. From later analysis, it was ascertained that the woman was wearing a striped cardigan, a cloth skirt and a light blue belt which she was still wearing. A short distance away from the tree, the police found some blue shoes that were made of suede with a crepe sole, but more significantly, a piece of taffeta or satin fabric had been stuffed inside her mouth, deep into her throat, which indicated that she had possibly been suffocated this way. Examining the body. Professor James Webster, the medical examiner and forensic scientist, was able to partially recreate the bones of the female aged 25 to 40, but determined that the woman was around 35 years old, that she had regular teeth in her upper jaw, that she had light brown hair, and that she was only 5 foot tall. He also determined that she had given birth at some point in her life, and that she had been dead for around 18 months. Although a huge piece of taffeta had been pushed into her mouth, the bones exhibited no evidence of sickness or violence, leading to a suspicion of asphyxiation as a probable cause of death. Webster would state that in his opinion, the death occurred in the summer of 1941. Professor Webster was more than convinced that this was murder, even going as far as to say that I cannot imagine a woman accidentally slipping in there. Neither do I think it's reasonable for a woman to crawl into that place to commit suicide. He also concluded that she would have been stuffed into the tree shortly after death, before rigor mortis had time to set into the limbs. Because of the rapidity of rigor mortis, Webster believed that the mystery woman was slain relatively near to the tree where she was discovered, as there would be little time to get it to the place and stuff her into the tree trunk. Because of the concealment of both the murder and the body, Webster also believed the killer must have had local knowledge of the region and be aware that this tree or the woods existed, therefore enabling him to perform the task relatively unseen. Although... Incidentally, in the summer of 1941, it is reported that a man heard what sounded like a woman screaming in the woods, and he promptly reported it to the police. Officers searched the area, but alas, could not find anything that would add to the screaming woman report. But if we consider that this could possibly have been the sounds of our mystery woman being murdered, and then stuffed within the tree, it is extremely doubtful that the officers would have checked each tree for a possible corpse. The public was given a possible description of the woman, who was described as being five foot tall, with light brown hair and clothed in a striped blue and mustard coloured sweater and a mustard coloured skirt. One blue shoe, size five and a half, which was discovered outside of the tree, and there was a similar one discovered within the tree itself. 
the public were also told of the cheap rolled gold wedding band. Calls poured in from all across the area after the description of the lady was released, but none of the leads led to a match. Investigating Missing People After the woman's teeth were discovered in the witch elm, Worcestershire police visited dentists throughout the country to aid in the investigation by looking within their records. They hoped a lead would come from this due to the mystery woman's unique dentistry. They also combed through 3,000 missing people reports to see if any of them fit the deceased's description. But it was wartime and bombs were being dropped on Birmingham and they were fleeing to these outlying towns and villages where they felt safe. And of course they were either missing or assumed dead in the bombing, making it very difficult to track down missing people at this time. An inquest jury returned the finding of murder by some unknown person or individuals. The Birmingham Daily Gazette also ran an article on May the 4th, again requesting dentists to come forward. Her front teeth overlapped in the lower jaw, and a tooth on the right side was missing, possibly extracted by a dentist within a year of the woman's death. Even so, neither missing person files nor dentist investigations yielded any results. The one item the police were able to trace were the shoes, and they discovered that they were sold at a market in Dudley. So it would seem that this was the only clue that they had in their possession. The case became known as the tree murder puzzle in the media, and as time passed the case was overshadowed by other crimes and horrors that run concurrent with war. Newspapers did cover the story at the time, with various headlines, and it was only 11 days later when they announced the murder verdict, and this was where a verdict of murder against an unknown person or persons was recorded, recording the verdict as happening on April the 29th, 1943. Cryptic Messages Things would eventually go quiet for the next six months, but this would cease when graffiti would begin to appear in the local area. The first of these messages would appear in December 1943, and would bear the legend, Who Put Lubella Down the Witch Helm? This was to be the first time that a name would be associated with the tree murder case. Again in March 1944, graffiti was sprayed on an unoccupied building in Birmingham. Who placed Bella down the witch helm, Hagley Wood? Was the message that was daubed on the wall. It was a common belief with all the investigators that the phrases were too high up on the wall to be ascribed to boys playing a practical joke, and police were now interested in person or persons that may aid in their inquiries, either to the graffiti or the identity of this Bella or Lubella. Following the discovery of this graffiti, officials received further information regarding the property on Hayden Hill Road that had been defaced with the words, Who pushed Lubella down the witch elm? Four months prior in December. Police assumed a lone countryman was responsible since the graffiti was all in the same handwriting 
and the writing all spelled witch properly, as in W-Y-C-H. As a result of these further examples that were scrawled in chalk on nearby buildings, the female name in the graffiti had changed from Lubella to just plain Bella, and it is the name that has persisted. The police encouraged anyone who knew of a Bella from the local area or further afield who had gone missing to contact them. The writings resumed again in April 1944, with Hagley Lubella was opposite Rose and Crown Hasbury, was written in Hailstone and Wolverhampton respectively. The graffiti looked to be identical to that of the earlier renditions, Despite this, no records of any Lubella or Bella matching the corpse recovered could be found. The country was completely enthralled by this macabre tale of murder and strange cryptic messages, and this was probably helped by its healthy amount of news coverage. One of the most well-known examples of the mysterious graffiti was located on the Hagley Obelisk in Witchbury Hill. This was one of the few examples of the graffiti where the word witch had been changed to its more familiar W-I-T-C-H. Although not unique in its spelling, it is definitely one of the rarer examples. The Hagley Obelisk graffiti was written in the late 1990s and was eventually washed off in 2006. It is largely regarded that the originator of the graffiti from the 1940s-50s had a story to tell and possibly knew the identity of the murdered woman and or how she ended up in the Witch Elm. The Hand of Glory Professor Margaret Murray, a prominent anthropologist, suggested the fact that Bella's hand was detached from her corpse in 1945 just two years after her murder, meant that it was a hand of glory. The procedure for a hand of glory is to amputate a criminal's right hand while the body is still hanging on some gallows. The hand should then be meticulously pickled over the course of two weeks. Margaret Murray is implying that this was done through witchcraft. The hand of glories are to help burglars in their attempt to steal from people's homes. Because there is human fat in them, they try to light them, and if any finger refuses to light, that indicates that there is someone awake in the house. On the other hand, it is believed that taking the hand into a home will cause everyone to go into a coma, so that theft can take place, but they have also been documented as trying to prevent further grievances or to deter crime. Margaret Murray said that it could relate to the 1945 murder of Charles Walton in Lower Quinton, Warwickshire, which was committed in a suspected witchcraft-related manner. Due to the fact that Bella's body was discovered entombed in a tree, indicating a ritualistic killing, and that she was possibly executed for a crime against a coven, there have therefore been links to witchcraft. Charles Walton was killed with a pitchfork and a hook, and there are numerous accounts of covens operating in the area of Lower Quinton. However, none of these claims have ever been proven. 
The fact that the hand was away from Bella's body has now been suggested that it is more likely to be predatory animals pulling at the bones rather than anything to do with occult practices. Donald McCormick also linked the two murders of Bella and Walton in his book Murdered by Witchcraft in 1968, so this perpetuated the idea yet further. Possible Suspects Along with all these outlandish theories, there was a suggestion that Bella would have had a wandering life, making it unlikely that her passing would have been greatly felt. In a BBC Radio 4 programme that aired in August 2014, Steve Punt suggested two likely victims. In 1944, a sex worker in Birmingham alerted authorities about one potential victim. She said in the report that Bella, a different sex worker who worked on Hagley Road, had disappeared three years earlier. The use of the alias Bella, or Lou Bella, suggested that the graffiti writer knew who the victim was. There was a woman by the name of Bella who went missing in the year 1941, and the timeline fits, but there is no proof, and it appears that she was discovered a few days later at her home address with her parents. The gypsies were regularly used as scapegoats when individuals went missing, or when incidents happened, and townspeople also blamed them. It was believed that Bella could have been a traveller who had been murdered by her own community since they had camped up close to Hagley Wood in 1941. Another possibility put up is that she may have been a local bartender slain by an American GI. There were a number of American GIs in the region. Alternatively, she may have been a homeless woman without family to report her missing. She may have been someone who slipped between the gaps of society. Anna. In 1953, the plot started to thicken and take shape when three German spies were apprehended nearby during World War II. And as a result, a fresh line of investigation revealed the potential for war espionage as the reason behind the murder of Bella. In that same year, the Wolverhampton Express and Star was to receive a letter by someone simply identifying herself as Anna of Claverley. On November the 18th, 1953, a lady identifying herself as Anna sent Lieutenant Colonel Wilfred Byford Jones, a journalist for the Express and Star, who had previously authored a number of provocative pieces on the Hagleywood murder under the pen name of Questor. A letter with a Claverley return address. The letter's contents have been printed multiple times and are now presented as follows. My dear Questor, finish your articles, RE the Witch Elm Crime by all means. They are interesting to your readers, but you will never solve the mystery. The one person who could give the answer is now beyond the jurisdiction of earthly courts. The affair is closed and involves no witches, no black magic, or moonlight rites. Much as I hate having to use a non de plume, I think you would appreciate if you knew me. 
The only clues I can give you are that the person responsible for the crime died insane in 1942, and the victim was Dutch and arrived illegally in England about 1941. I have no wish to recall any more. There is a final paragraph which references a mutual friend that, according to the police files and questor, has nothing to do with Hagleywood murder. It has been scribbled out by pencil and is difficult to decipher. Anna. The Express and Stars B.E. Whittaker, the editor, forwarded Anna's letter to the Assistant Chief Constable at the Country Police Headquarters in Worcester on November the 21st. The letter piqued the police's curiosity, so they urged Anna to come forward. Finally, on December the 3rd, 1953, Anna wrote Questor another letter, which stated the following. Dear Questor, Had so much publicity not been given to Anna, I would have contacted you before. I will meet you and officers at the Worcestershire CID at the Dick Whittington. It is beyond the stew pony from Wolverhampton. Tomorrow night, Friday, at about 8.30pm, and maybe I can help them with their investigations if they are still interested, subject to my conditions to which I think you will agree. You, of course, will not advertise this meeting in your press. You have had many wild goose chases during the last few days. Maybe this will be the last or the beginning of many. Who knows? At the Whittington, they have a bar on the left of the entrance called the Priest's Hole. Sincerely, Anna. Unfortunately, there is not a clear record of what happened at the Whittington pub on the evening of December the 4th, 1953, in the West Mercia Police Archives. The only information available comes from a newspaper story Questor wrote on January the 16th, 1958. It appears that police had sworn him to secrecy, but Questor felt free to share the story of his encounter with Anna from Claverley after seeing an ITV interview with the pathologist who confirmed that the lady had been identified. It was late in April 1943 that the remains of Bella were found by three youths in a hollow tree in Hagley Wood. A picture of what the girl had been like was soon built up by a pathologist and the robot figure he created told the police much but not her name and address, and the secret of her death. No indication that either of these mysteries had been solved was given until recently, when a pathologist said of Bella in an ITV programme, after extensive inquiries by the superintendent, Detective Superintendent T. Williams of the Worcestershire CID, he was able to identify her. It was a classic piece of detection. So now a pledge I made to keep secret further facts of the death of Bella in the witch elm is purged. I can tell of my dramatic meeting with a woman who claimed to know how Bella died. It began with the receipt by me of a letter from a writer who signed herself Anna. It was marked urgent and gave what purported to be some of the facts of the murder. It is to these facts that the pathologist referred as the solution. After the first, I appealed to her through the Express and Star to meet me to discuss the crime. It was obvious that she was afraid to do this since the facts she had given involved a relative. She said he was present when Bella, or to give her full name Lubella, died 
in what the writer knew as a bluebell would. It was not until ten days after that Anna wrote again. She fixed a rendezvous in a way that could not have been more melodramatic if it had been written in a Dorothy L. Sayers detective story. The place of the meeting was arranged in the monk's room at the Dick Whittington Inn at eight o'clock one dark rainy night. No clue was given in the letter of how I should know Anna. She did not describe herself. All she said was, you will know me when you see me. Outside the inn, I met Detective Superintendent Williams, a girl detective and a male detective shorthand writer. Singly, we went into the monk's room, a quiet cell-like place off the left of the corridor that led to the mitred back door. Then a girl entered. She was tall and curvaceous and blonde. Her clothes were fashionable. She looked in astonishment when she saw three people sitting expectantly and without a word between them in a quiet corner of her otherwise empty chamber. She mounted a staircase, still looking at us curiously, but without a word or sign. In ten minutes at least twenty girls entered, mounted the staircase, then descended and left. All of them looked at us, it seemed with apprehension and bewilderment. Then I set off to investigate, and I found that the stairs led to the ladies' toilet. The little earnest group of sleuths were too tense to see the humour of the situation. We all knew that one of the dozen girls had been Anna. The question was which. Taking separate routes, the chief, the girl detective and I converged on the long bar in a room reached by descending several steps at the end of the corridor outside. Here we searched among the female faces for a guilty or knowing look. Chief Detective Williams, one of the smartest men in his line, found that he was converging on the same woman as I. She looked quickly first at me and then at him, and then she began to talk rapidly to a well-dressed man who accompanied her. I did not hesitate. The chief heard me say, Anna, I believe. She caught her breath, nodded to her companion. I follow you back in the monk's room, she said, and she and her companions joined us five minutes later. There followed for me, and I think for the detectives, a fascinating half hour. Anna gave us her name and address. Speaking with great solemnity, she told us that she had for ten years guarded her story with great secrecy. Only one person, her husband, who accompanied her, knew the story she was about to tell. No one else would ever have heard of it but for the fact that I had reopened the case. The details given, the new revelations made, had deprived her of sleep. Then she told us her dramatic story answering satisfactory questions asked of her without warning to check her grip on the facts. She gave us the name and address of an officer. He had come to her one night in late April 1943, in fact, on a day which was consistent with the expert assessment of the day of Bella's death, and told her that something terrible had happened to him. He confessed to her under secrecy that he had been with a friend, a male trapeze artist, then appearing in 
an indecipherable word. Hippodrome and a Dutchman in a car. The officer was driving it. Between the other two men in the back was Bella. Suddenly, as the car was descending Mucklow Hill, Hellsowen, something happened. The girl seemed to have collapsed. The officer stopped the car. The two men then told him to drive on. She's dead, they told him curtly. The order to drive on was repeated, far more peremptorily than before. The car was driven through the blacked-out town of Helsaman, then Hasbury. Finally, after several tentative halts, he was told to turn to the right off the main Bromsgrove Road. He found himself in Hagley Wood. Here the body of the girl known as Bella was carried out and the officer was called on to help stuff it into the hollow trunk of the witch elm. Anna told us in a broken voice that the officer was terrified. Next night he went again to Hagley Wood to make sure he had not been suffering from hallucinations. He came back late at night. There's no mistake, he told Anna. The body is there, all right, just as we left it. She said he had given the details exactly as I had done. She told her husband long ago. Anna then said that the officer told her that he did not trust his two male companions of that tragic night. He said that he believed that the Dutchman was actually a German spy, and he could not understand why the police did not pick him up. He and the trapeze artist asked if he could give them details of the location of certain munitions factories. All these were concerned with the manufacture either of aircraft engines or aircraft accessories. Anna said the officer came home at times with large sums of money and he could not explain where he got it. One of these factories, he had not given the location of it, was later heavily bombed. The officer said that Bella or Lubella had entered this country illegally in 1941 after Dunkirk. He thought she worked for the spy as an emissary and had fallen foul of them or become dangerous. He said the girl was murdered. Anna then said that the incident connected with Bella had such an effect on the life of the officer that he had a nervous breakdown. He was taken to a mental home which she named where he died. Inquiries proved that such an officer had in fact died on that date and at the place stated. Other facts were also verified, but the Dutchman could not be found, although efforts to locate him were made in Holland. It is impossible for me to say if the police ever discovered the whereabouts of the trapeze artist, but MI5 were brought into the case. Detective Superintendent T. Williams, when asked last year to comment on the case, added to the air of prevailing mystery by saying, I can't make any comment about it at the moment. The case is still not closed. I do not think it would be advisable to say anything at the present time. But the pathologist who appeared on ITV said about Bella, But after extensive inquiries by the superintendent, he was able to identify her. It was a classic piece of detection. As is the way with journalists, the article could have been exaggerated for dramatic effect. Fortunately, Una Hainsworth gave the police a statement that she signed, although the exact date this statement was given to the police is unknown. The declaration is as follows. Name. Una Ella Hainsworth. 
I was married to Jack Bossop in 1932, and we went to live at the Bridge House, Womburn. At the time, he was studying to be a surveyor. The only child of our marriage was born in 1932, and he was christened Julian, and at the present time, he is somewhere in America. My husband joined the AST in 1937 as a pilot officer and was stationed at Hamble, near Southampton. In 1938, he commenced work for the Armstrong Siddeley Works Coventry, and subsequently, he went to work at the Standard Aero Works at Coventry, Banner Lane. In 1940, a man named Van Rolt came to our house, number 39 Barrow Road, Kenilworth. I believe this man was Dutch, and as far as I know, he had no particular job, and I have a suspicion that he was engaged on some work that he did not wish to talk about, but in my opinion, it might have been that he was a spy, for he had plenty of money, and there were times that my husband appeared to have plenty of money after meeting him. It was either in March or April 1941 that my husband came home and was noticeably white and agitated. This was about 1am in the morning, and he asked me for a drink. I made a comment that I thought he had had enough, as he had been out all day, but I gave him a drink, and he said he had been to the Littleton Arms with Van Rolt, and the Dutch piece, and that she had got awkward. My husband was driving the car which belonged to Van Rolt. She got in beside him. Van Rolt was in the back, and then she fell over towards my husband, and he said to Van Rolt, that she had passed out. Van Rolt told him where to drive to, and they went to a wood, stuck her in a hollow tree. Van Rolt said she would come to her senses in the following morning, and as far as I know, my husband came home. He came home in Van Rolt's car, which was a rover. I lived in Kenilworth until December 1941, and between April and December, my husband appeared very jumpy, and it was noticeable that he had more drink than usual and appeared to have more money to spend. He was nearly always away from work, and this led to my suspicion that in some way he was obtaining money and may have been meeting Van Rolt. I should mention that my husband had an old standard car of his own, which he used to go off for days on end, and I did not know where he was. When I left my husband in December 1941, I went to Henley in Arden, and we lived there for ten years. We lived at Nuthurst House, Shrewley, near Henley in Arden, and we finally returned in 1951 to Kenilworth and came to our present address in August 1953. I saw my first husband, Jack Mossop, at Kenilworth on three occasions after I was forced to leave him in December 1941 and tried to get my possessions, including furniture from the house. And on one of these occasions, it would be the last time I saw him, he told me what I thought at first was a further story to put me off, and it was as follows, that he thought he was losing his mind as he kept seeing the woman in the tree, and she was leering at him. He held his head in his hands and said, It is getting on my nerves, I am going crazy. It was about June 1942 when I heard that he had been taken to the mental hospital at Stafford, where he died in August 1942. I was not informed of his death at the time, and I did not attend the funeral because of this. 
The first I knew was when my present husband told me that an application had been made at the works claiming money that was due to him and sending a doctor's certificate. I had no knowledge whatsoever of the Hagley murder until an article appeared in the Express and Star newspaper. Neither had I read anything before which could in any way be connected with the incident I have told you about. I have not discussed this matter with anyone and it was not until I was reading the details and bearing in mind the possible date when the woman met her death that I in any way connected this with my husband's statement to me in March or April 1941. And because of the articles referring to witchcraft etc., I decided in the first place to write a letter and sign it Anna. I put sufficient clues in the letter which would have helped to have identified me and it was only because of a subsequent appeal in the newspaper and because I felt I ought to say what I know on this matter that I decided to arrange to meet you. I cannot add anything further and because I am now married again with three small children I hope that what I have said to you will only be used to aid the course of justice and it is this which has prompted me to take the action I have. I was not treated too well by my husband and do not wish any way to rake up the past, but if what I have told you will help you in this matter, then the foregoing statement has been made by me voluntarily and with that end in view. I, of course, have no proof that what I have told you now is the truth, but bearing in mind my husband's condition and what he said to me at the time, I have done my best to recall it to help in the inquiry. Signed, Una Hainsworth. Already we can see two of the most famous theories regarding Bella start to form. Firstly, we are treated to a dramatic tale penned by Wilfred Byford Jones that features espionage and spycraft. And the second tale recounted in the police statement forms the basis of the drunk woman shoved inside the tree by Mossop and Van Rolt's story. The pair hoping that when she awoke the next morning, she would be scared enough to see the folly of her drunken ways. Byford Jones's article is littered with inconsistencies and statements that are ill-researched or just plain wrong. He seems to be the author of the statement that MI5 was called into the case, although research into West Mercia police files yield no evidence of MI5 involvement. There is a lot of speculation that Wilfred Byford Jones, or Questor, actually wrote the letter because the language he was famous for using matched a few of the expressions that appeared within the text. It is also believed that expressions such as the jurisdiction of the earthly courts and mentioning using a non plume were not typical of a homemaker of the West Midlands in the 1940s. Despite this, various theories about who wrote the letter are still being circulated. And what of the mysterious Van Rolt? It is strange that the authorities were unable to get additional information about Van Rolt's personal information from Una Mossop. The pool of people who could be present in war office, home office, traffic index and alien register data might have been reduced with the use of even an estimated age and description. A further spy theory would emerge that would feature information provided by MI5 that could have possibly bled into previous theories. The final person to be executed at the Tower of London on August the 15th, 1941, Joseph Jacobs, was subject of an MI5 dossier that has since been made public. As a spy, he parachuted into Cambridgeshire in 1941, 
but he broke his ankle on landing and was swiftly apprehended by the home guard. This subsequently triggered a sequence of events. On his person was a picture that appeared to be his girlfriend, German cabaret singer and actor Clara Bowell. She was being trained as a spy, according to Jacobs, and if he had established contact with her, she would have been sent to England in his place. Numerous witnesses indicate that Clara was roughly 6 foot, 180 centimetres tall, as opposed to Bella, who was just 5 feet tall. But there is no evidence that she was parachuted into England. According to a story published in September 2016, Clara passed away on December 16th, 1942, in Berlin. The Missing Bones Over the years, appeals for witnesses have been made repeatedly. Television, newspapers and the radio have all published the tale and asked witnesses for any fresh leads. In 1968, a sketch that depicted the clothes that Bella was wearing was published in a newspaper. An image depicting a piece of fabric from the skirt and an image of the cardigan she was wearing were also published. The police also developed a police impression of what they thought Bella looked like while she was wearing her assembled outfit. The sort of clothing that she was wearing and a very specific description in 1968. She was, as previously mentioned, five foot tall with brown hair and a knitted sweater, a skirt, blue suede shoes with a crepe sole and a peach-coloured taffeta underskirt that is thought to be the fabric that was stuffed in her mouth. She also had uneven teeth. Professor Caroline Wilkinson, who also expertly recreated Richard III's face when his remains were discovered, led a team from Liverpool John Moores University that used images of the skull and jaw to create a digital impression of how Bella might have appeared. Since the skull is now missing, she was unable to use it for Bella. The police have well and truly closed the case on who put Bella in the witch arm, but many people have echoed the same refrain, and that is, what about using modern DNA technology to ascertain who Bella was and who her killer may have been? Unfortunately, the remains of Bella are totally lost. The police did look for her remains at one point, but they were looking in the cemetery. It is possible that she could still be in a box in storage somewhere in Birmingham University. She may also have been sent for burial elsewhere, but we just know that after her post-mortem, Professor Webster gave her skeletal remains to a college in Birmingham University to run some more tests. Unless new information is discovered, both the victim and her killer are unlikely to be identified. Your support and feedback are paramount to us. Our social media links and email addresses are readily available in our bio, and we warmly invite you to reach out to us with any thoughts, suggestions or ideas for future episodes. Your input plays a vital role to our continued improvement and ability to provide top quality content for our listeners. Accessibility is the utmost importance to us, and we are dedicated to making our podcast available to all. All past episodes are available for free on all major platforms, as well as on our website. 
Additionally, if you enjoy the music that we specially composed for this series, you can listen to it in its entirety on Bandcamp, free of charge. We are deeply grateful for your time and attention, and thank you for being part of our journey of discovery. Your support means everything to us, and we look forward to our continued exploration into the realm of the unexplained. Next week, we will be looking at the Battle of Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings, Time slips, cryptids, cults, and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by torch and moonlight. Go to occultariaofalbion.com or search Occultaria of Albion wherever you find your favourite podcasts. End transmission.